What's been referred to as the New Atheists, represented by Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett, and the late Christopher Hitchens, have engaged in the debate addressing God's morality and the presence of moral evil. Most of their work has been to prove that God does not exist, but that if he does exist, he is not great or deserving of worship. The New Atheists, who derive their name not from having new arguments per se, but rather from their new decibel level in proclaiming their arguments, have sought to undermine the very notion of God, but they may have undermined moral reality in the process. Dawkins wrote, The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. Wow. Well... Challenge accepted. Stay tuned until the end. If this is your first time here, make sure and hit that subscribe button so that you never miss a video or an interview. Our goal is to help you enter into a confirmed, confident, and eternal relationship with the source of all life and purpose. If we're just dancing to our DNA, then no one can ultimately be held responsible for any actions, and evil becomes a term without an ontic point of reference. In other words, morality would disappear into the abyss of human imagination at that point. Furthermore, as has been shown in other videos, macroevolutionary theory cannot account for the complex language system within DNA. But it seems Dawkins has elevated DNA to a status that still ignores the statistical improbability of how it attained that status. And this is a prime example of the epistemic gap within naturalistic theory. See, the naturalist has a tendency to see what is, and having observed it, states how it is, as though that is enough of an explanation for how it came to be. Now, Dawkins, again, to his credit, recognizes what implications naturalistic theory would have for standardizing morality. In another interview with Michael Medved, Dawkins said, I've always said that I'm a passionate anti-Darwinian when it comes to the way we should organize our lives and morality. We want to avoid basing our society on Darwinian principles. One apologist wrote, atheists often blunder into the right by borrowing from assumptions that are not logically deduced from their own worldview. But their opinion is so strong that they straddle the two worlds and make up a bridge because they have reached an unbridgeable chasm given their starting point. The starting point of random unguided natural processes is hardly the building blocks for a moral framework. That being said, Sam Harris, an, an atheist who is both a philosopher, sort of, and a neuroscientist, has much to say on how humans can arrive at life-sustaining moral standards simply through biological evolution. He writes, Many people imagine that the theory of evolution entails selfishness as a biological imperative. This popular misconception has been harmful to the reputation of science. In truth, human cooperation and its attendant moral emotions are fully compatible with biological evolution. Harris seems to ignore the fact that his colleague Dawkins, in a book entitled The Selfish Gene, wrote, Let us try to teach generosity and altruism, because we are born selfish. Let us understand what our own selfish genes are up to, because we may then at least have the chance to upset their designs something that no other species has ever aspired to do. So apparently not all naturalists share the same perspective as Harris. Now there's also another very subtle flaw with this 
or similar thinking. We would have to already have access to the correct morality in order to know if we should upset our genes so that we make sure that our genes guide us to live properly. But as is often the case in naturalism, Dawkins is assuming a moral code and epistemic access to such a code, which means he would confidently be able to understand and acquire this moral code, even though he and his genes are the very thing preventing him from accessing such a moral code. Do you see the problem? He would almost have to have an out-of-body or, I guess, out-of-mind experience for this to happen objectively. Now, it should also be noted that many scientists, most notably biochemist Michael Behe, have shown a flaw in the premise being proposed by Harris in regard to the selfishness of biological evolution. So, with regard to the underlying theory contained within Harris's assertion, Behe writes in Darwin Devolves about two groups of extended evolutionary synthesis scientists that's a tongue twister, who propose a similar theory. The first speculates that once master genes and their regulatory networks of connections were in place, perhaps novel complex features could be developed mostly by random changes that accidentally form new signature sequences near various genes. The second group emphasizes the ease of deploying an array of machinery to different locations, which, like ectopic fly eyes, would generate a lot of variation much more easily than Darwin might have imagined. Maybe that would give selection more to choose from. If all that sounds distressingly vague, I'm afraid that is the gist of the argument. The unanticipated discovery of layers of control, master switches, and the stunningly sophisticated genetic regulatory networks they activate does not make the putative, undirected development of all life any easier to explain. Evil Devo or evolutionary developmental biology enthusiasts seem to imagine. It makes it harder. The need for a foreman and subcontractors to coordinate construction does not make it easier to explain how unintelligent processes could make a building out of bricks and wood and pipes and wiring. It shows it to be impossible. So Behe is indicating that an external infusion of sorts, in fact, a number of external infusions would be required in order to advance biological evolution. Who or what could that source be? Now, if not God, it seems unlikely that unintelligent and unguided natural forces could be responsible for natural evolution, not to mention moral evolution. Additionally, Sam Harris simply assumes that human cooperation and its attendant moral emotions would be natural outgrowths of a macroevolutionary process. Harris goes on to write, The work of evolutionary biologist Robert Trivers on reciprocal altruism has gone a long way toward explaining cooperation among unrelated friends and strangers. Because moral virtue is attractive to both sexes, it might function as a kind of peacock's tail, costly to produce and maintain, but beneficial to one's genes in the end. Even if we accept Harris's premise that moral virtue is attractive or beneficial, it still does not allow us to assign an objective value to what morality is in its essence. How are we to know if what we are attracted to in another is being accurately perceived as high moral character? What moral standard are we comparing their moral virtue to in order to determine where they measure up? How do we define what is most beneficial to us or to humanity at large? See, these are metaphysical questions that cannot simply be reduced to physical or naturalistic foundations. In reviewing the works of C.S. Lewis, David Baggett noted, Moral language today is so peculiar, in fact, that Lewis suggests that this is why many people try to explain it away. Some attempt to reduce moral impropriety to an instrumental matter, as we do with a tree, 
for our purposes. Does not shade us well and is, for this reason and in this sense, a bad tree. But regarding Harris's premise that human cooperation and moral propriety would be natural outgrowths of macroevolution, Mavrodes highlights a flaw in such thinking. So Mavrodes puts forth the following syllogism. A. It is in everyone's best interest, including mine, presumably, for everyone, including me, to be moral. B. It is in my best interest for everyone, including me, to be moral. C. It is in my best interest for me to be moral. However, premise C is flawed. The more accurate conclusion for C would be C prime, where it is in my best interest for me to be moral as long as everyone else is moral. The argument thus serves to show that it is in a given person's interest to be moral only on the assumption that everyone else in the world is moral. Now, although most people behave in ways that people of all worldviews would deem as moral, there is far from any guarantee that enough individuals, communities, or countries will not derail the system by eschewing their moral obligations. The atheist J.L. Mackey wrote, Moral proprieties constitute so odd a cluster of properties and relations that they are most unlikely to have arisen in the course of events without an all-powerful God to create them. And that's from an atheist. To avoid the import of God as the foundation for moral values and duties, some level of contractarianism has been postulated by a number of naturalists. Now, contractarianism intimates that human beings can rationally and collectively determine how best to live in a moral agreement. In a debate with William Lane Craig, Paul Kurtz said, Is it possible to formulate ethical principles upon which we can agree? This, of course, is the great question of our time. It seems to me that people of goodwill and rationality, dedicated to realizing the best of which we are capable, need to work together to achieve this. But even if all humanity could somehow agree on a moral contract which detailed moral values and obligations, it's not clear how such a contract could be objective. If those same humans collectively changed their minds a decade later and sought to enforce a different moral contract, how could anyone govern himself or herself accordingly, knowing that the contract could change a year later? Furthermore, there are 7 billion people on the planet, and if some of them disregard the contract or are unaware of its existence, they have the potential to derail the entire moral system of accountability. Logistically, it would be impossible for all of humanity to unite physically or in any way in order to determine the rules contained within such a moral contract. Therefore, some people will be left out of the process of outlining the moral contract, but somehow they will be presumed to still be governed by it. Now, these are just a few of the inherent difficulties with such theories. More to the point, the epistemic or how we come to know something incongruencies are still present. The math ain't mathin'. Baggin and Walls write, A picture of reality in which all life is no more than a product of blind naturalistic forces and fortuitous collocations of molecules is fundamentally less adequate to underwrite morality than a personal universe created and sustained by a perfectly loving God. Traditionally, conceived moral obligations while residing comfortably in a theistic universe, are incongruous in a purely naturalistic world. The noetic structure refers to how one builds upon beliefs one obtains. For example, one must first believe in color in order to believe that a banana is yellow. The noetic structure or the structural building blocks of this argument is irreconcilably broken. Once the naturalist attempts to go from blind evolution 
from inorganic to organic, and from the laws of physics to the laws of morality. Copan writes, The familiar cry for justice, as old as humanity itself, suggests a transcendent moral standard above national laws and social contracts. Former atheist C.S. Lewis recognized this as well. He wrote, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? The naturalist has no epistemic warrant for affirming the straight line. The primary moral argument simply stated is as followed. If good exists, God exists. If such a thing as objective evil exists, that assumes there is such a thing as an objective good. This necessitates the existence of a moral law in order to be able to distinguish between good and evil. In order for the law to remain objective, a moral law giver must exist who transcends those governed by the moral law, namely humans. The Christian claim is simply that only God fits that criterion. Walls writes, Atheists Wilson and Ruse conclude no abstract moral principles exist outside the particular nature of individual species. The status of killing others could have been different from what it is. The redundancy argument submits that we would come to believe that some acts are immoral, whether or not those acts really were immoral, given the facts of Darwinian evolution, rendering morality redundant. What is really moral or immoral cannot remain objective in a naturalistic framework. And that is dangerous for everyone. The epistemic gaps or the gaps in knowledge, which is how do you define evil or good in this case, which is a necessary precursor to identifying the correct way to live, prevent the arrival to an ontic moral reality or actual moral reality, objective moral reality. In other words, the gaps in knowledge, how do you define evil or good, which is a necessary precursor, identifying the correct way to live, don't help you get to the ontic or actual reality of what is objectively right or wrong. Therefore, any appeal to the inherent goodness or evilness of an act or event by a naturalist in spite of the veracity of her recognition of the quality of that act is ultimately disingenuous because such a claim supersedes the logical capability of her worldview. In other words, you can't just get the right answer when it comes to upholding your worldview. You have to also show your work along the way, just like math class. Otherwise, it's just begging the question, how did you arrive at these moral realities from such a worldview that can't sustain the precursors that lead to those truths? But I'd love to know your thoughts in the comments. What gaps do you see in naturalistic or other moral theories? And how does it bless you to know that someone is upholding an objective moral law on our behalf? Until next time, peace.